0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to our Old Testament reading, Daniel chapter 6. We'll read verses 19 through 28. This is the end of the story of Daniel in the lion's den. In our sermon text today, we'll see a circumstance where some folks who don't know any better uh, assume that Paul must be guilty of a grave crime Um, when he's bitten by the snake, and yet the Lord protects him. And the long-term end result is great glory is brought to God's name in a way that is analogous to what happens in the case of Daniel's deliverance from the lions. So let's read beginning with uh, verse 19 of chapter 6. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Amen. Now let's fast forward to the reign of the Caesars and hear of this other servant of the Lord, the Apostle Paul, beginning with Acts 27, verse 27. we'll read across the chapter division to chapter 28:15 Acts 27:27 27, 27. When the 14th night had come as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms a little farther on they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had "'gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. "'A viper came out because of the heat "'and fastened on his hand. "'When the native people saw the creature "'hanging from his hand, they said to one another, "'No doubt this man is a murderer. "'Though he has escaped from the sea, "'justice has not allowed him to live.' "'He, however, shook off the creature into the fire "'and suffered no harm. "'They were waiting for him to swell up "'or suddenly fall down dead.' But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Amen. You may be seated. This past week was uh, Margaret's 10th birthday, which was pretty exciting, double digits. And um, as we were enjoying her birthday breakfast together, uh, Annie and I were sort of reminiscing about our 10th birthdays. Um, I was telling the story of how my 10th birthday was sort of bittersweet because my family was just about to move out of state, and um, so that celebration ended up being sort of a last hurrah with my friends in South Carolina before we relocated to Raleigh. Um, It was not an easy move for our family, not that any move really is. Um, There was definitely a lot of sadness about the good friends that we were leaving behind. Um, But as we were talking about this, uh, Annie said, well, you know, of course, if if you hadn't moved to Raleigh, no, it wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't have re-met me. And then there never would have been a Margaret to be having a 10th birthday celebration with. And so it was a neat moment just to think back over uh, all of God's providence in um, the whole big story of our lives and and all of the little individual uh, decisions and events and the many countless factors that have brought us now to this moment here in State College uh, with these dear children in this congregation that we love. And that was really neat to think about. So... Um, Let's think about Paul now. I've I've spent uh, quite a bit of time explaining in past many sermons how uh, Paul's arrest in Jerusalem and this whole plan for him to be transferred to Rome um, to await trial before the emperor. These were uh, not at any point somehow off plan from the Lord's point of view or even from Paul's point of view because like we talked about last time, he uh, Paul had explicitly said earlier in Acts um, as well as in his letter to the Romans that his intention was to visit Rome and, and basically if, if the Lord wanted to use the Roman justice department to get him there for free, well then so be it. That works out great for Paul. Um, but that sort of picture perfect uh, scenario Uh, starts to look maybe not quite so pristine when the storm blows up on the Mediterranean. You think, surely this shipwreck is not part of that plan. If the point is to get Paul to Rome, this looks like Paul being kept away from Rome. This looks like resistance to the plan. But could it be something else? Could it be that that plan that the Lord has set in motion is a more multi-dimensional plan, a richer plan than maybe we realized. That perhaps there is something very important from the Lord's point of view that, that needs to happen on the island of Malta, which would not have happened if Paul had just made it from Caesarea to Rome with a stiff tailwind Under blue skies. Very different kind of story for the end of Acts. So let's look at this passage then in in three parts. First will be saved through the sea, verses 27 to 44. Second, uh, saved from the serpent, chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. And then finally, uh, saved to spread salvation, verses 7 through 10. So saved through the sea, saved from the serpent, and saved spread salvation for saved through the sea. So um, I love Isaiah 43. Uh, this is a very precious passage in my mind to me. Uh, in Isaiah 43, you should notice there's something the Lord does not promise there. Um, this is the one where he says, when you pass through the waters and through the rivers and through the fire. Um, but in response to those things, he does not promise uh, listen, I'm going to keep you from ever having to pass through deep waters and fire. And what does it say? He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you pass through the fire, you will not be burned and the flames will not consume you. As the hymn based on that text Uh, puts it, when through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. Why? For I will be with you, your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. That's what we're seeing here with Paul in this storm. As we saw last time, the Lord doesn't put a stop to this storm like, like Jesus did on the Sea of Galilee during his earthly ministry. Instead, He is showing here that he is clearly with Paul in these deep waters, and he is working on Paul's behalf through and in the midst of this storm, giving Paul a calm within the storm. That was last week. In particular, it it continues to be very striking here how much Paul uh, really seems to be taking a kind of unusual leadership role on this ship, even though he's a prisoner on the ship. And so in verse 31 and again in verse 33, notice the uh, the tone of authority that Paul seems to be speaking with, um, even towards the centurion and the captain of the ship. Um, no, you shouldn't let the sailors abandon the ship. they have got to stay if we all want to survive. And, and, and the centurion listens. It's like he's following Paul's orders and soldiers cut away the boat into the sea and in verse 33, again, Paul speaks, says, listen, everybody, we all need to eat something. Um, we need to keep our strength up. Think about what. why is that significant. Well, if think about if, if you're in the middle of a, of a storm at sea and you're on uh, tenterhooks at every moment thinking that at any time, just one wave could bring sudden death. If that's the situation that you're in, you're not going to be worrying about eating a meal. Um you're going to be entirely occupied with that present, desperate moment of survival as each wave crashes over, holding on tight. So by eating this meal, what is Paul doing? Paul and the people following his example are acting on a different assumption. They're acting on the assumption that there is yet life ahead for them that they need to prepare for by taking nourishment now for the work of getting safely to shore, as Christ has promised them. I want you to think about this. If you think about it as Christians, this is really the way that we should experience every single meal we take three times a day. See, uh, It's true that no day is guaranteed to us. Every breath that we take is a gift. And so when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, then... What we're doing there is we're trusting that if we yet have life and breath and work ahead of us in God's providence for his glory, that he's going to provide for it. God is going to give us the resources now for the work he has planned for us in the hours ahead. And so every bite, like every breath that we take, we take independence on him. And we're responsible, therefore... Um, to use the energy of that nourishment, not to please ourselves, but to serve him. And so, every meal, every day, is, in a sense, like this meal Paul enjoys in the middle of this storm. Because that's where we are, right? We are in the middle of a metaphorical storm, sometimes literal, and yet, God has given us these promises. He's going to care for us and he's giving us the strength to endure. It might transform the next time you say the blessing for a meal. Think about well, it's not just a ritual, empty formality. It's a very deep meaning. Um, we could go a step further perhaps. I think there's a good illustration here. I don't, I don't want to overstate this and sort of make the text into an allegory, kind of spiritualize it um, in an inappropriate way. That would not be good exegesis. But I do think there's at least a good illustration here, an analogy for thinking about the Lord's Supper. Think about what we did last week when we took the Lord's Supper together. This is what the Lord's Supper is like. It's like a meal in the midst of the storm. Where You think about the alternative. Instead of just perpetually, frantically running around, trying to save ourselves from the storm In the Lord's Supper, we do the incongruous thing. We stop thrashing about. We are still, we gather in the presence of God, and we receive from the hand of Christ that spiritual nourishment that we need for the work that he's giving us to do. But of course, for that matter, as I was saying earlier, it's not just true of the Lord's Supper. It is really true of every meal. We eat every meal in hope so that we can be ready to work in the strength, 1 Peter 4, that God supplies. So, again, think about that next time you pray before a meal. It is a way of acknowledging that I am not my own. I've received this food from God, and I'm responsible then to use the strength that it gives me for him in confident expectation in his promises. Okay, well, verses 39 to 44, then we can continue to see uh, the many ways that the Lord Jesus is working to preserve his servant Paul, um, not just from the sea, but also from the soldiers who want to kill all of the prisoners. Notice how Paul is the center of attention here. All of these people, the ship, the storm, the sea, Christ is governing it all, directing it all with the preservation of his servant Paul as his first priority, as the center of attention. Once again, we're seeing The the sovereignty of the risen, ascended Christ. That's been the great theme of the whole book of Acts, right? Christ on his risen, ascended, heavenly throne, directing all of the events of this book, orchestrating them all in keeping with his plan, which in this case involves the protection and preservation of his apostle. But as I was saying at the beginning, at at this point you might do a double take and think, wait a second, how... Okay, that's great that Jesus is keeping Paul safe through the shipwreck, protecting his life. But what about the shipwreck itself? How is shipwrecking Paul on some random tiny island in the Mediterranean possibly um, part of the plan? If the plan is to get Paul to Rome, to stand before the emperor and to have a ministry there in the capital city of the empire, this seems like a pretty major detour from that big idea, has the Lord was this outside of God's control? Is God kind of reacting to a wrinkle in the plot that he wasn't expecting. And of course, that's that's just like us, isn't it? Uh, to forget how intricate and rich and multi-layered Christ's plan, His providence, His governance of history in general, and also included in that of our personal history, in particular, really is on. So on the one hand, you can look at God's plan in a very simple and straightforward way. Simple and straightforward as a a single-note melody, we could say. It's a musical analogy. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. One great big story arc of all of history. It is really that simple. That is how the Bible tells the story of history. We know the ending. We know where his plan is going. But how we get from here to there, that is where God's genius as, as the great composer of history really comes in. That's where we see the fugue-like profoundness, the, the great complexity and yet great precision and purpose and order in every measure. Um, that's where we can see the, the rich kind of symphonic Textures and colors, as the as the Lord's infinite wisdom directs this whole host of themes and motifs and colors into this perfect whole that He has in mind. And so, uh, to kind of extend this analogy, with apologies to if this uh, doesn't connect with you, but I think it will connect with some of you. You could think of us living kind of in the in the middle of the development section of the symphony. And in places there's very great dissonance and clash of the harmonies, and the melodies may seem to be wandering around all over the place, and, and the harmonies may be kind of very tortured and intense and uh it may be even seeming clashing, but what we understand by faith as we experience that middle of the story is that it is all setting up for the triumphant resolution of all of the harmonies. On the final page of history. See, in Paul's case, what this means for him is that the Lord does not take Paul to Rome. He is taking Paul to Rome. He is taking Paul to Rome, but he does not take him there via the shortest distance between two points. Right? The Lord could have done that. So we need to get Paul to Rome. We'll just, you know, carry him there by balloon or something. But he doesn't do that. And why is that? Well, it's because Jesus is the Lord of all. And as the Lord of all, he is the Lord of Malta as well. And as the Lord of Malta, the Lord has a special plan for the people of Malta. Malta, of all places, this little island south of Sicily. How long do you think it would have been, if not for this shipwreck, for the people of Malta to get a visit from a Christian missionary? I'm reminded of John chapter 10, where Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. and They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. See, Christ has sheep on Malta too, this little island. And he's he's sovereignly directed his servant Paul to that island so that they too can hear. So they, too, can be brought into his fold at one flock with one shepherd. I imagine Paul was probably not expecting to have a mission to Malta added to his missionary agenda. But here he is. And so Paul does what Paul does. He ministers in the name of Christ. But um, something happens first. Uh that is part of Christ's plan to bring the gospel to this island. Right away, Christ um, arranges for a way to impress the people of this island with the understanding that of all the people who have just been shipwrecked, one of them is different. One of them stands out that there is something remarkable about this man, Paul. And how does he do that? This is the second heading, Saved from the Serpent. So Paul's gathering sticks to build up the fire that they've made to uh, warm up the wet and shivering ship's company. And it says, when he put the sticks on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And it's fascinating, the conclusion that the islanders jumped to immediately. Um, Scholars note that there were uh, actually stories in Greek literature about people guilty of terrible crimes, who escaped from storms at sea only to be killed uh, by venomous snake bites later after getting safely to shore. And the idea, kind of the moral of the story being that you can't uh, ultimately outrun the justice of the gods. Your crimes will eventually catch up with you. Uh, if they were living today, somebody probably would have said something about karma, right? Karma caught up with him, except they call it justice. It's very similar kind of idea. Well, how quickly they change their minds, of course, when he shakes that snake off into the fire, and they wait, they wait, and nothing happens. He doesn't swell up, he doesn't start foaming at the mouth, he doesn't keel over like they're expecting to happen. Nothing happens, and so their superstition then kind of backfires, flip-flops, and now they think, well, he must be some kind of god, uh, because he escaped this snake bite. Um, John Stott points out this is very similar to what happens to Paul and Barnabas um, at Uh, Lystra in Acts chapter 14, except in reverse. There the people first think that they're gods because of the uh, miraculous healing that they do. Um, And then later uh, they turn on them and stone Paul um, at the end of the story. Well, here it's the other way around. So first they assume he's a criminal deserving death and then they change their minds, flip-flop, and think now that he's a god. Well, in both cases, of course, the the crowd is, is wrong. They're wrong on both counts in Lystra and on Malta, Um, except for one thing in this case. This is where we should slow down and think about this for a minute. There is some grain of truth, isn't there, in their guess that Paul perhaps is a murderer. Think about if they had asked Paul about this later, and perhaps they did. What do you think he might have said to them in response? you think he might have said to them something similar to what he said to King Agrippa? I myself was convinced that I, that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against Remember when we first met Paul under the name of Saul, what was he doing? He was standing watching the garments of the men who were stoning Stephen, the first martyr. Could it be, you might ask, seeing this storm take place, seeing him bitten by that snake, could it be that after all this time, Paul's sins of his early life are finally coming home to roost? That may be karma is finally catching up with him. That, even worse, to contemplate that the Lord Jesus, after all this time, is finally bringing down on Paul, after a long delay, the judgment of those old, rotten sins of his past that had been postponed for so long. The answer, of course, is no. No. No, that is not the way that the justice or the grace of Jesus Christ operate. No, as Paul wrote a couple of years before to the very church that he's about to meet face-to-face in Rome. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, the wages of sin is death. But but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Is Paul a sinner? There's no doubt about it. Is he even a murderer in at least some sense? By some measure, yes, he is. But what else is true of Paul is that he has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. He's been dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. Fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, yes. But he has been justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I love the wonderful John Newton hymn that we're going to close with in a little while where it says, let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through faith in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. People of God, some of you may sometimes feel, yes, I've been forgiven by Christ. God has forgiven me. I know that because Jesus died for my sins, but some part of me still wants to believe that God is still holding my sin against me. When Paul shakes this serpent off into the fire, it's like he's silencing the arguments of the great accuser of God's people, the devil himself, and he's providing to the onlookers proof that in his case, as in the case of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. When through faith in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more because on the cross it was finished. God's wrath was fully satisfied against you and he will never hold your sin against you again. He has washed us with his blood. He has secured our way to God. Now, obviously, in the beginning, the people of Malta are a little confused about Paul and and what he's all about. They they interpret what they're seeing through their existing frame of reference. They assume that he if well, he, he's has this supernatural power over this serpent, then maybe he's a, a deity himself. Um, but there's no doubt that he's going to be there in Malta for three months, and we can kind of read between the lines, fill in the gaps here of what Luke doesn't. Uh, spell out that during those three months they would have had ample opportunity for Paul to explain to them and clarify for them that no, Paul was not a god, although he was God's representative, God's messenger, carrying with him by the power of the Holy Spirit the power of the God who is mighty to save, mighty to save not only his messenger from the sea and from the serpent, but mighty to save them too miraculous saving power of God is not just for Paul. You can see how Christ immediately begins to extend it through Paul to the people of Malta. Paul has been saved from the sea and the serpent in order to spread salvation to the people of this island. First, it's the father of Publius, the island's sort of of mayor. So his father was sick with a fever and dysentery, but uh, Paul visits him and prays, puts his hands on him and heals him. And the news of this begins to spread. And so people from all over the island come. And everybody, everybody's diseases are cured by the power of Christ. You remember from chapter 1 how Jesus gave his disciples that great preview of his master plan for their mission in the world. You will be my witnesses, he said, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and where? To the uttermost parts of the world or to the end of the earth. And so here, Paul is as far from Jerusalem as he has ever been in his life and he is continuing to carry that mission on. Um, I think there's an important lesson we can learn here in Malta as we think about world missions. The mission of the church Um, is not just for the major centers of civilization, for the great capital cities of, of the world's mightiest nations. Jesus has sent his church to every tribe and tongue and nation, and our ambition as the church of Jesus Christ is that all the ends of the earth might see the salvation of our God, as the Psalms put it. We should then see no people group as too remote or too few Too difficult to reach because the gospel is for Malta just as much as it is for Rome. It is for Haiti. It is for Caramoja. It's for every unreached tribe. It is for countries that are officially closed to the gospel. See, for Christ, no door is locked. No location is inaccessible. No language barrier is too difficult to overcome. Every tribe and tongue And nation is represented around his throne in Revelation. And therefore, we should expect Christ to be sending us to every tribe and tongue and nation, to all of the sheep that he has in every fold around the world, so that not just Rome, but Malta too, and other places like it, might have the joy of knowing the saving power of Jesus. Now, the Lord may not... Be sending you personally to a place like Malta. Although don't be too quick to rule that out. Why does it always have to be someone else? But I'll leave that to one side for you to think about. Whatever Christ's plan for your life may be, I have no doubt that he will. And up to this point has already taken you on any number of uh, unexpected detours, we could call them. And there's no doubt that he will do so in the future. When that happens, you have a choice. You can get angry and frustrated and bitter, and you can think, Lord, this is not what we agreed on this is not the plan that I thought that you had for me. What in the world is going on here? Why this interruption? Why am I here when I thought you were taking me there? Why this delay? Why this disappointment? Or you can encounter that change instead with curiosity. And and you can sit down and take your next meal in the midst of what may feel like a great storm, in hope, thinking, I wonder what the Lord is doing this time. I wonder where the Lord is taking me this time, and what objective is he working for in my life and through my life that simply would not have happened if things had gone exactly according to my plan. It's not as though I have some inalienable right to get from here to heaven via the shortest distance between two points with a stiff tailwind under blue skies. I don't. It's never been a guarantee of the Christian life. In fact, you have every reason to expect it will be a winding journey, with many detours that you're not expecting, many melodies and apparently dissonant harmonies woven in that you didn't expect to hear and you don't really understand at the moment because the music is too rich for you at that time in your life. But you also have every reason to expect that it will be good, that you can trust him. And this is important that he is not punishing you in that. No, you are covered in his righteousness. On you, if you are in Christ, when through faith in Christ your trust is justice, smiles on you and asks no more from you on top of what Christ has already done. What he is doing, what he is doing is is preparing you. He's preparing you for the work he has yet for you to do. So You can approach those changes with curiosity, saying, I can't wait to find out what that might be, with that hope, then, with that expectation, with that attitude. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your providence, for the promise that in every change, you, faithful, will remain. We are changing all the time. Our life circumstances are changing all the time, but Lord... Your providence is constant from all eternity. You have foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, and we pass, and, uh, Lord, sometimes that is hard for us to trust, hard for us to rest in, but we pray that you would please help us to do that. And uh, to let go of our anxiety and the frustration and bitterness we sometimes feel when things do not go as we expect, and help us instead to have that curiosity to see how you are going to work and what you may have in store for us to join in your great plan for the great resolution of all the dissonances in the end. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.